Welcome to the Bar Hacks Podcast. Engaging interviews, plus tips and strategies to navigate your bar or restaurant business towards sustainable success. Now, here's your host, hospitality industry veteran, journalist, and editor, David Klempt. Hey, welcome back to the Bar Hacks Podcast. I hope you're well. We have an awesome guest. We have David Allison, the founder of the Value Graphics Project, who you'll remember we discussed hotels last year, and now we're going to discuss restaurants. How's it going? I'm doing okay. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. How are things up in, uh, I'm afraid to ask, but how are, <laughs> how are things where you are? <laughs> I'm up in Vancouver, Canada, and things are, things are I mean, Vancouver is... Uh, you know, the land of milk and honey. So everything's, uh, everything's just tickety-boo here. Um, <laughs> use a, a nice boomer phrase. What can I tell you? We're, we're heading into, I think, the final dying gasps of the coronavirus. Uh, maybe not the best set of adjectives to use to describe a airborne lung disease, but things, I just feel like there's a light at the end of the tunnel that I haven't felt in a very long time. And it feels really good to see a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. yeah, I think I'm going from just absolute COVID exhaustion as far as the let's close, let's open, let's limit, let's not limit. We have this vaccination rate. We need this vaccination rate. I think I'm going from that to the same thing where I'm like, this this has to end, right? Like, we can't just keep keep doing this. It's got to be over soon. So, well, yeah, we've been saying that for a long time, though. So I'm not making any bets. I'm, uh, I'm like, okay, you know what? We're learning to roll with it. I'll give you one real concrete example. So I did do a lot of public speaking pre-COVID. It was always on a stage, get in a plane, go fly somewhere, talk to a big group of people at a conference or something. Uh, and then slam, that all stopped and it became digital. And so gradually, slowly, as it dawned on me that this was going to be around, I spent more money on more camera equipment, more lighting equipment, more sound equipment. And just last month decided it's finally time we're going to actually renovate the whole home office and turn it into a permanent digital video studio because even if COVID magically disappears tomorrow, digital presentations are here to stay. If, if I had to make a bet right now, which is not what we're supposed to be talking about at all, but just to carry on with this three, uh, thread for a moment, I'd say we're going to be living with this or some form of this for a very long time. And so let's just adjust. I agree. I mean, Tales of the Cocktail, I had them on and they basically said, we're going back to in-person. They're partially saying because the the mayor of New Orleans said Mardi Gras is go. And hopefully that really does mean that Mardi Gras is go. But they are still going to present digitally because they're like, we had such great success with that, so much engagement. Why would we just get rid of digital hmm. when more people can get the message and the education and can network than could before if they had to come to Tails physically. So I think your investment was wise. I mean, it's, it's, things are going to be digital. So. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Our big goal here at the Value Graphics Project for the next year is to take our message and our data and our new book and get global. We've spent a lot of time over the last five years in Canada and the United States and uh, the odd thing uh, in other parts of the world, but our database has now grown to include 180 countries where we're accurate. And I feel like it's my responsibility to help um, those people in those countries start to understand the, well, to use a marketing line, the enormous power of shared human values to understand uh, and motivate and engage people because it's just so much better and better for business, better for the world. So for people who may have missed the first appearance, 
that you made on Bar Hacks. Can you explain the Value Graphics project? I thought you'd never ask. I actually prepared <laughs> some slides. So let me walk you through this. I'll try and keep it light and fun and not feel like a university lecture, but here we go. Uh, the very first thing I want to make a point about is that if people decide to start looking at the world with a value graphics lens, that there's a huge promise here. We can do really, really well for ourselves because this is so much more powerful than demographics and psychographics alone. It's an incredibly big advancement in terms of marketing and segmentation and market research. It's, a, it's kind of the future of marketing. But at the same time, there's a bonus is that we're going to be doing a lot of good while we do this. And so I'll get into that when I finish my comments uh, in a couple minutes here. I always like to start with this kind of like, how did I land here? People are always like, well, where'd you come from? What's this all about? So uh, I had for a decade, a company that focused entirely on doing marketing and big marketing campaigns for huge condominium developments all over the world. So real estate developers would come and say, hey, David, uh, what should we call this building? And what should the ads look like? And help us build a little sales center and make some TV commercials, whatever. And we always started with a description of who the target audience was. And it was always pretty much aging baby boomers with cash. And so I just started calling them all Bob and Sally. So we did dozens and dozens of these Bob and Sally projects. And the cool thing about the real estate development world is that it has a beginning and a middle and an end. Those towers get built, sold out, they get built, and then you get to go and meet Bob and Sally at the, at the opening. So you're standing around in these rooms over and over and over again for 10 years with a, you know, cheap champagne and, and the shrimp on a stick. And you're looking around and going, well, there's maybe 10% of the people in this room are a Bob and Sally. Who are all these other people? I didn't spend any money talking to them. I didn't buy the right media for them. I didn't create messages for them. I was talking to Bob and Sally. So first off, what are they doing here? How did they find out about this? And why is it 90% of the room is not the people I just spent a million bucks in a year trying to talk to? What, what are, who are all these folks? So this became like the big question of the day is who are these mysterious 90%? It seemed incredibly inefficient that I'd spent all that money, all that time, and I had been talking to 10% of the room. So when I sold my company, I said, you know what, I'm gonna go figure this out, I wanna solve this. And it led me down a path that led me to, to where we are today and we have solved it. But the path begins with this. Every single organization on earth, whether you're in the real estate development world, you're in a, the restaurant world, you're in the hotel world, you are selling hedge funds, you are the Roman Catholic church. It doesn't matter who you are, you're just trying to find your people and get them to do some things you'd like them to do. That's it. Everything else is all just man-made layers of bureaucracy and nuttiness because we need to have that in our lives for some reason. <laughs> so it basically, though, we all get up every day and we go to work and try and get some people to do something we'd like them to do. We want to engage people and activate people. So it kind of begs the question, you know, how do people decide to do something if what we're here trying to do is get them to make the decisions we'd like them to make? So this is a good story for anybody who ends up wanting to explain why this approach to the world is so powerful. I call it three friends in an alley at midnight. So three friends have been out having a few drinks at their favorite bar because they haven't been able to for a while, COVID, pandemic, lockdown, restrictions, all that stuff. So they're really happy to be seeing each other and they've had a few too many drinks. It's getting close to midnight and the smart one in the group says, hey, you know what? We should call it. We got busy days tomorrow. Let's go. So they're walking down the street. They get out of the bar. They're walking down the street. They're being noisy and loud because, you know, that's what you do when you've been out with your buddies drinking and you've had too many and it's late at night and you're, I don't know, pushing each other around and play fighting and doing all that stupid stuff that drunks do. And uh, suddenly they turn a corner 
and there's this dark alley and they have to figure out what they're going to do. They have to make a decision. So friend number one, the only thing we know about friend number one for certain is that friend number one's primary value in life is experiences. So friend number one thinks, let's go down that dark alley. How fun. Oh my God, we're drunk. I love you guys. Let's go down the alley. This is going to be amazing. And friend number two pipes in and goes, well, the only thing we know about friend number two for certain is their primary value in life is safety. Says, nope, nope, nope. This is the stupidest thing we could possibly do. Why would we go down that dark alley? It's late. It's dark. We're drunk. I love you guys. Something bad is going to happen. Let's get the heck out of here and go back to the bar. And friend number three, the only thing we know for certain is their primary value in life is friendship. Doesn't really care. We don't go down the alley, go back to the bar. I don't care as long as we stick together because we're a little bit drunk and I love you guys. That's the end of the story. But the point of the story is that we didn't need to know anything else about those folks other than what they care about. And neither did they. Not one of them stopped and went, well, gee, I'm an 18 to 24-year-old male with a college education, and I'm single, but I plan to be married, and I make about $50,000 a year. Therefore, my response to this situation is X. They just thought automatically, what do I, how am I looking at the world? And how we look at the world is entirely based on our values. So our values determine everything we do. And it's not just my silly little story, if you dig deep into behavioral science, if you look at neurology, psychology, psychiatry, sociology, all these fields for decades now, scientists have been studying how do people make decisions? How are people's lives ruled? What are the drivers behind behaviors and emotions? They've all come to the same conclusion, which is that what we value determines everything we do, whether we know it or not. Let's talk about it just really quickly around one of those fields of science. Let's talk about neurology, for example. Neurologists will talk to you about the prefrontal cortex of your brain. We've all heard this old trope that the prefrontal cortex is basically the CEO of your brain. So everything that happens, all the incoming data, sight, smell, sounds, everything that you encounter as you go through the rituals of your daily life, your prefrontal cortex, your CEO is checking out all this data and going, oh, okay, well, we're going to react this way. We're going to feel like this. Uh, let's issue an order to the legs to run away because this is a bad thing or run towards because this is a good thing. So if family is one of your primary values and something comes along that's great for your family, you're going to want that thing. You'll move towards that thing. You'll make decisions about that, getting more of that thing because it makes you feel good. That's all your prefrontal cortex doing that. But if something comes along that's bad for your family, you're going to do everything you can to get away from that thing and get that thing out of your life and not have to think about that thing anymore and feel anxious until you make that happen. So you don't even know you're doing it half the time. Your prefrontal cortex is doing it for you, but your values are the sortation system for how you do everything in your life, how you lead your entire life. And the psychologists, the psychiatrists, the sociologists, they'll all back me up. It's all ruled by what our values are. So that's kind of cool to know. Now, here's the problem, though. We're trying to go back to the original statement here, which is that we're all trying to just get some people to do something we'd like them to do. Well, that means we need to know the shared values for a whole group of people. Otherwise, we're talking to people one at a time. And I don't know, if you're Nike, you don't have the opportunity to talk to everybody singularly. You got to be able to say, well, all the people who are going to buy this particular uh, sneaker, they care about this stuff. These are their values, so I can talk to them about that and get them to do the things I'd like them to do. Presumably Nike would like them to buy those sneakers. 
So that was the problem. That's where my journey ended. It was a brick wall. And I said, there's no way to do this. There's ways to find out individuals' values. You can go, you know, psychologists can use an MMPI inventory, a Myers-Briggs test. There's all kinds of tools that uh, leadership and development folks use in, in the corporate world to help people understand their own values. But for a whole group of people, which ones do they have in common? Just, there wasn't a tool. So we went and built one. And in order to do that, we had to have a, a model to follow because it hadn't been done before. So we looked around and went, well, who else has done something similar? And we landed on the, the Human Genome Project where they said, you know, there's 3 million different component parts and we have to catalog them all and put them in some sort of a system to understand the biological human. And depending on which of those component parts are in your makeup, you are tall or short or a blonde or a redhead or male or female, and you have different amounts of pigment in your skin. So that's kind of the hardware, the code for the hardware of this thing called humanity. So what we needed was the software. So we decided to mimic this. And we've gone out and collected all the different component parts it takes to understand whether someone's going to be a family man who's driven by personal growth and ambition or an environmentalist who's all about their friends and fitting in and belonging. And so now we have the software for the hardware of what it means to be human. And we call that the Value Graphics Project. And so now together we have this kind of, um, you know, one-two punch. We know what people are and we know who people are. Uh, in a very similar kind of system. Now, the good news is uh, those, those poor geneticists, they have 3 million parts to keep track of. We only have 56. Uh, so that's kind of <laughs> cool. Nice. Now we're at 750,000 surveys now that we've done around the world in 180 countries and 152 languages. And this database is now more accurate than you need for a PhD from Harvard. For the planet, we've mapped the 56 core values that drive what everybody does and what it means, what's the software for, for being human. And the way we built this data set, we can, for any target audience anywhere on earth, we can go in there and go, oh, okay, people are going to buy those Nike running shoes in Bulgaria. They have these values. And the people who are going to buy those Nike running shoes in Central America they have these values. And so Nike needs to figure out a way to talk a little differently to this group uh, compared to that group if they want to have the same response and get people to do the things they'd like them to do, which again, presumably in Nike's case is by the, by the sneakers. Uh, so there's only 56 things. And when you think about it, that's kind of lovely. I mean, there's 88 keys on a piano. So there's fewer ways that we're different from each other than there are keys on a piano keyboard. We are different though, you know, we map the world with this stuff now and there are differences in terms of which ones rise to the top in Africa versus China versus Tokyo versus Berlin. And so we can now see how the whole world is united and yet unique. It's kind of a, an inventory of shared human values or we sometimes will call it a directory of what makes people make decisions. And so this is a great new resource for businesses for obvious reasons. It's a global inventory of core human values, a directory of how people make decisions. And it gives us the ability to give you the operating system for your target audience. If you know what makes them tick, now you can get them to make the decisions you'd like them to make. So we have to rewrite the marketing textbooks and stop telling people that demographics and psychographics are somehow what you need to know to understand how to get people to do things if you're going to profile your consumers. And I'm a little braggy moment for a second here was actually as of today, as far as we know, there's, there's three 
marketing textbooks that are coming out with a new edition where they're including information about value graphics because those three have approached us. I'd like to think there's a bunch of others who are realizing how important value graphics is as part of the stack. And so you have to keep it in mind like this. There's a picture of a three-legged stool there for a very good reason. Demographics are still super important. You know, back in my real estate marketing days, we would uh, get asked to market, I, I don't know, a penthouse condominium tower that's worth $15 million in downtown Gotham City. Uh, and we knew it wasn't going to be a 14-year-old girl who worked part-time at the grocery store who was going to buy that thing. It was going to be a certain demographic. They had a certain amount of money, probably a certain age, probably downsizing boomers from the suburbs who were looking for a, their forever home that they wanted on one level up in the sky so they could be back in the downtown core and going to nightclubs or whatever it is boomers want to do when they move back downtown. <laughs> So it's still important to describe your target audience, but the problem is we've been using demographics and then thinking that that's somehow sort of magic information that helps us understand who those people are. It just tells us what they are. We know what they are. They're boomers, they're rich, they're retired, they're downsizing. So that's kind of bleeds over into psychographics, which is a record of what else do we know about these people and how they've behaved and what their emotions, like maybe this is their third home. Uh, maybe they hate the real estate buying process. Maybe we know that because of things they've said in surveys in the past. Maybe they're really sad that they're leaving their home in the suburbs. And so we need to find ways to help them recreate the kinds of connections they had there. So that's all cool. Demographics to describe psychographics as a record of who these people are, what they're all about, what they've done so far. But all that data comes from the same place. And we've been binging on psychographics. Like we know every click that people make on a website and every time somebody walks by our store with geo-tracking and how many times they abandon a shopping cart on Amazon and uh, you know when they burp. I, we've, we've got all this data about everything, but it all comes from exactly the same place, which is the past. It's all historical. If you can write it down, it's already happened. So what we really want to do, let's go back to slide number one. We want to get some people to do something different. We want to get them to make a decision. We need to know how to influence their future. So you need this third leg of the stool. You need the demographics to describe the audience, psychographics to tell you some kind of patterns around how they felt and done stuff in the past, and then value graphics to activate them, to engage them, to get them to pay attention because people are hunting for that. Their prefrontal cortex is forcing them to go look for their values in all the ways they make decisions about everything. Little brag and boast list, all the companies who are using us right now. It's really gratifying to see these big brands starting to reach out and say, we want to look at our customers and our competitors' customers in a way we haven't done before. And we think that now that we've all spent a couple of years at home, really getting into what's important in our life and reconnecting with our values, uh, that's how we need to do this, David. So can you help us out? So it's, uh, we're doing some really fun work uh, for great companies. Okay, here's some stuff specific to restaurants. And I'm going to just share a couple things I think are cool. And then I hope you're going to ask me some really germane and interesting and intelligent questions uh, about no, what you nothing. think is cool. <laughs> <laughs> we did a study on people who go to restaurants a lot, uh, at least three times a week. Uh, now, this is pre-COVID, obviously. We weren't able to go to restaurants three times a week during COVID. Uh, and so coming out of COVID, these folks are going to be, there's a lot of pent up energy. These are folks who are really you know, big fans of restaurants for various reasons. And now we know why they're big fans of restaurants. So restaurants can look at this and figure out how to give them more of the stuff they're actually coming to a restaurant for. You might think it's food, but it's not. It's why that food and why that restaurant and what that's doing for my values. Because the only reason they make a decision 
is if it aligns with my values. So why are they choosing restaurants? And, you know, we can get a lot more detailed with this if we were to do a study specifically to a particular restaurant chain. Applebee's is going to have a different set of values in play for their customers than, I don't know, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse or something like that. Just picking big brands that came off the top of my head in no, for no particular reason. But what you're seeing here is what we call the top 10 plus togetherness for people who go to restaurants at least three times a week. Those are the white dots. We've nicknamed them the reserved because they make reservations. So we thought we we're being kind of cute and creative there. So these are the people who maybe should have called them the reservationists or something like that. <laughs> Because uh, they're not necessarily reserved. They could be crazy party animals for all I know. But the, these are folks who said to us that they go to restaurants at least three times a week. And then we've compared them to the general population of uh, the US and Canada. And we can see some pretty stark differences around which of the 56 values are most important and rise to the top of the list. So I've done a couple of little pieces of analysis that I thought were kind of interesting. If you look at just those two values, personal growth and experiences. They chart much higher for people who are reservationists, the reserved people who go to restaurants. It's much more important to them around personal growth and experiences than it is to everybody else in, in the United States and Canada. So what do you do with that? And say to yourself, well, gee, personal growth is a value that people will be chasing if they're trying to be a better version of themselves tomorrow than they are today. So that could manifest itself depending on what restaurant you are in all kinds of ways helping your customers be a better version of themselves. It could be educational. It could be that um, they're really dead interested in where that wine comes from and what's the name of the wine expert who actually made that wine. And can you tell me something about the, uh, the terroir in that particular region of Burgundy? And they want to leave feeling like they know more about wine. Personal growth could also be about all kinds of other things. I want to, I want to, learn how to eat better. I want to learn about new cuisines, new ingredients. You know, sometimes on restaurant menus, we see, um, you know, some kind of rare pasta that we've never heard of. And, and some people are scared to say, I don't know what uh, a bitioni is. I just made that one up. Uh, and, and others are like, tell me all about it. What's it look like? What shape is it? How's it compared to the ones I do know? those folks are looking for personal growth. They're going to want menus that have all kinds of extra information that reads like a novel. And they want a little bit of extra time to read through that stuff. Now, I'm, not, I'm getting really focused on personal growth as it relates to education. It could be all kinds of things. If you're the sort of restaurant where it's, um, it's because uh, remember, this is people who eat out at least three times a week across the United States and Canada in all kinds of restaurants. So this also includes McDonald's. They're in here too. So how does McDonald's help me with my personal growth? It might come back to, you know what, man, you're, 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 you're moving fast. Your day is full. You don't have time. drive through window is the absolute best thing for you. And we have um, some healthy options on the McDonald's menu that'll keep you fueled and ready to go out there and conquer the next thing on your to-do list. So there's a way to frame up whoever you are, whatever your benefits are in a way that talks to, I mean, I'm, we're here to make you better. We're here to make you a better person. Now, it's funny you mentioned McDonald's. I'm about to cut you off, but yeah, yeah. I just wrote about this because I was reading some other you know, journalists had, had addressed it. But as far as the plant-based, McDonald's made a big investment. They did a big push. And another group looked at the push overall for plant-based and was like, you're not telling people why they should be buying this. You're telling them it tastes like meat you should have this. And they were saying, as far as your personal growth goes, 
if you tell someone that replacing one plant-based meal at McDonald's can have a better impact on the environment, you'll probably capture more people coming to McDonald's for that plant-based burger. So it was as far as your personal growth goes, people who are looking to go plant-based, McDonald's, as an example, could say on their menu, this will actually help the environment. I still think some of the data is kind of out on that and how exactly healthy the, the, those foods can be, but you know, they're, they're making an attempt, but that, that group who likes personal growth and if also like sustainability or something is important to them or personal responsibility, which is on there, that could speak to that. So I, yeah, you, no, it, it's, values it's, are interesting. It's very true. Um, you know, if, if that, let's say um, uh, uh, Ronald McDonald's called me and say, hello, it's Ronald, the CEO of McDonald's. And we'd like to help understand how we can get more people to come and eat our plant-based Big Macs. What we would do is say, first off, let's profile people who eat at McDonald's now. Uh, and we're going to see how important environmentalism is to them because environmentalism and sustainability is one of the 56 things that could be driving their behaviors and decisions. So if that shows up on your current profile for your current customers, then yay, home run, you know, for a fact before investing a dime that this is going to ring some bells and help you solidify your base of current customers. But we don't want to just solidify the base. We also want to steal some share from the other guys. So we would also go out and profile people who are eating at Burger King and Hardee's and uh, Arby's and whoever else McDonald's thinks is a competitor. And we'd see which ones of those have a customer profile that perhaps includes environmentalism as an important value. And if none of them do, then we need to go and do an even broader base study and say, okay, there's people out there eating quick service food somewhere who are interested in saving the planet. Who are they? Where are they? And what else do they care about so that we know how to build an entire message that's going to make sense? Because what we find, for example, you brought up personal responsibility. Whenever we see environmentalism show up in a profile, 99.9% .9 of the time, we also see personal responsibility on that profile. Environmentalists want to feel like they're the ones making a difference, not I'm part of a movement who is going to save the planet by stopping the glaciers from melting, but I'm going to recycle differently today and that's going to make a difference. So for that group, if we can find environmentalism and personal responsibility together, the message is once a week, come and eat one of these burgers and you will be helping move the needle. And you know exactly that that's gonna work because we know that that's what they're chasing. You're talking to the two, two of the values that are super important to those folks. But even if you just look at experiences here for the overall, I think if anybody listening to this is in the business of trying to figure out how to talk about, build, design, put together restaurant ideas, strategies, packages, brands, finding a way to combine those two, personal growth and experiences. How can you make going to this establishment something experiential? We've all been chasing that. It's the theater of dining. It's all those kinds of things, but make it about personal growth. I'm, I don't know. I don't know the business. I don't know if there's trends and things that people are trying that align with that right now already. We talked about this as it related to um, grocery stores with some other folks that we were doing some custom work for. And one of the suggestions that they came up with is why don't we have a nutritionist who's available through real time on an app while you're in the store? So it's kind of cool. You're walking around with Sally, the nutritionist on your app and going, yeah, you know what? My whole family's trying to, we're just always tired. We want some more energy. And Sally can go, go over to aisle 10 and get some of this and some of that. So now you have a personal shopper helping you 
around your personal growth and it's an experience, you've combined those two. So what's the equivalent in the restaurant world? Is there a way to put those two together? So depending on what kind of restaurant you are and what kind of food you have and what your experience is like in there, there's gonna be a billion different answers, but that would be a great place for a restaurant group to start some very focused brainstorming around how you can bring those two together. Here's another pairing I thought was kind of interesting down here. Loyalty and personal responsibility, scoring much higher for frequent restaurant goers than, than for the rest of the population. So loyalists are people who need to be won over. They won't be loyal until you're loyal to them. Until they see some signs that this is going to be reciprocal, they're, they're not, they're not going to be loyal. But once they get an inkling that you're loyal to them, you can mess up a bunch. Uh, you can you can make a mistake here and there, and they're like, oh yeah, well, it's okay. You know, they're not going to run away screaming the first time something goes wrong. So they're worth courting. And one way to court them is around personal responsibility. Also, personal growth and experiences, just to make a point, though, I'm talking about these two as a pair. So personal responsibility is people who want to feel like they are the ones who are moving the needle and making things happen. They, I'm pushing this peanut across the table. Me, my actions and thoughts today are making this, this happen. So how do you combine those two in a restaurant environment? How can you, I mean, loyalty programs are, are um, they're around at a certain, with certain kinds of restaurants. There's unspoken loyalty programs, which are just basically making sure that you say, hi, Bob, when people walk in uh, and rewarding them with recognition. How do you reward them with personal responsibility though? Here's a crazy idea. It's very topical, uh, but the restaurant industry right now is still reeling from the impacts of these uh, lockdowns and restrictions and things. And I think industry-wide, some of the lobbying groups and, and the, the, the loud voices who are trying to get consumer support and drum up some grassroots empathy for the people who work in the restaurant industry, they'd be well advised to think about making the message of help and support into very easy to understand examples of personal responsibility. You're coming to eat dinner at our restaurant tonight is helping Sally over there get some braces for her kid who's 12 and is in grade three at the local school. Now I'm going to come and I'm going to think twice about uh, where I'm going to have dinner tonight because I, I feel like I am personally responsible for things. We see this in the not-for-profit sector a lot. It's a lot easier when you start to talk to people about direct impact. Give me 10 bucks and we're going to save a kid's life. Not give me 10 bucks, it's going to go into an unending pool of uh, money that's being used for all kinds of stuff to accomplish some big giant goals. Just figure out how your establishment, your brand, your chain can sit down and, and, and I think industry-wide can connect loyalty and personal responsibility to each other. And I think you got some really powerful stuff there. So my first thought when you tied loyalty and personal responsibility, first was that, uh, I believe it was last week, the Independent Restaurant Coalition asked everyone in the industry to contact their reps, but then encourage their guests who are loyal to them to do the same thing and their friends and families. But then when you tied personal growth and experience into it, I was like, you actually could also bring in the local farmer who provided something, do an education session, and then they realize, oh, it's not just the workers in this restaurant that my dollars support, it's the local farmers who supply these things. So now you've also can say for the people who like personal responsibility and personal growth, you can hit them with the fact that they're helping the entire community.
Hi there, just a quick message before we get you back to this episode. If you're looking to take your bar, restaurant, or hospitality business to the next level, I mean to profits of 12 to 15% or more, it's time to take action. Let's start creating your roadmap to success with our proprietary strategies, tools, resources that will inspire your team, activate your potential, and lead your hospitality brand to margins you never thought possible. Visit krghospitality.com right after this episode for more information. Now, back to the Bar Hacks podcast. Yeah, so put it this way. We all have to eat. Where you eat is more than just filling yourself up. Where you eat can have an impact and an enormous impact on real people in a very meaningful way. It'll impact the artisanal brewery down the street who were serving their stuff in our restaurant. It's going to impact the farmer. It's going to impact the servers. It's going to impact the people who uh, lease space to us in this building. It's going to impact so many. And I mean, it would be amazing if there was some way to actually calculate a dollar spent in a restaurant equates to how much uh, growth and prosperity in the community. Uh, I saw stats on this for arts, the arts community at one point where it was, I think it was every dollar turns into $12. So every dollar you spend in the arts turns into $12 in terms of employment and tax base and other investment and all these other kinds of things. So there's a great argument for why governments should be putting money into the arts programs that are in the, each, all the communities that we're hopefully listening to this today. Uh, but what's that number when it comes to restaurants? So yeah, I mean, this, that's exactly what these charts are for, is to spark those kinds of, wow, hey, mate, wait a minute, we're doing this thing. And if we just tied it into that thing a little bit, then this other better thing could, could happen as a result. And all this stuff we're doing right now is what we call values thinking. And that's the whole point of value graphics. It's a focused brainstorming. If you think about this as two sort of overlapping Venn circles, it's just looking for the places where what you've got, what you have to offer, what your benefits are, what, whatever it is you've got on the table, what tools you have to work with, where that overlaps with what they're looking for, what they want, the values that drive all the decisions that they make all day long. And that sweet spot in the middle, focus your brainstorming on that spot and you become magnetic because prefrontal cortex demands that you will be magnetic if you're offering up values in, uh, in the way that you approach and, and talk to people. I'm going to come back to those charts, but I want to just get, make sure we don't run out of time. I, I want to give everybody a little uh, going away present. There's a, there's a bunch of different ways you can actually find out a very much more precise version of your specific target audience. So that chart we were looking at was for all people who eat in restaurants all across America and the United States. So it's very broad. Everything's in there. But if you wanted to go a little deeper, there's a couple ways. The first one is uh, you can hire us for a custom value graphic profile, but that's expensive and it's not for everybody. So let's just uh, know that it's there if you're interested. Uh, my book, which you can get on Amazon, my current book, new one's coming out in probably June. The current book is called We Are All the Same Age Now. And again, if you're Googling right now and trying to find it, my name is David Allison. Get onto Amazon, buy the book. It's 16 bucks. This isn't a pitch for book sales. I make like $2 every time you buy one. So <laughs> a thousand people buy this. I might have enough for, a, you know, I don't know, a couple of nice dinners at a local restaurant and supporting all the amazing people that the restaurant industry supports. Uh, and in the book, there's a quiz, a 10 question quiz. And that quiz will point you to a chapter, who, however that, that quiz gets answered by your patrons, the people you're interested in understanding, it'll point you to one of 10 archetypes. And there's a whole chapter in each of those archetypes, we tell you what their values are and what you need to say and do to get those folks to be interested. So 
you know, a custom profile is super precise. This is like playing the piano with your fists. That's why we have a piano key there. But at least you're starting to use values to understand people instead of demographic stereotypes and, and other tools that just don't work anymore. And the third way, you don't even have to buy a book, is to use these three questions. Uh, we call them the three telltale questions. So in your next survey, next time you're talking to your target audience, however you are, even training frontline staff as they interact to, in their own words, ask these questions and then somehow collect what you're, what you're hearing will be enough. So we've taken a lot of time to design these three questions in a way that will get people to tell you stuff. And then if you listen for the patterns in the noise, they're going to all have their own ways of answering, but you'll start to hear themes and those themes are values bubbling to the surface. So you got to be listening, do this a lot. You want a couple hundred people, many as you can to answer these three questions. The first one, why do you go to work? People start talking to you about why they go to work. You're starting to hear what their inner motivations are, what their values are, what they're, what they're chasing. The second question, why would you give away half your lottery winnings? Not would you, but why would you? We're assuming you are. So why would you do that? And the last one, this is my favorite. You get to communicate with yourself from 10 years ago. What would you say, more importantly, why those things? So you see the pattern here. It's the why, right? It's the why are you making these big decisions in your life? And if people start to tell you that stuff, you listen to enough people, you'll hear that it's all about family. It's all about pride. It's all about ambition. It's all about personal growth. Those themes will start to come bubbling to the surface. So just start asking those questions. I'm going to wrap up uh, really quickly here and we'll go back and talk about that chart. So, you know, the answer to the question about the mysterious 90%, they, they actually weren't so different. Remember back at the beginning here, I was saying we were standing in that room and who are all these people that aren't Bob and Sally? Why are they here? They don't look like Bob and Sally at all. You're right. They didn't look like Bob and Sally on the outside, but on the inside, we now know that they were all identical to each other. They were there because they had some common values. And without knowing it, we'd been saying stuff that was triggering those values and getting them to make that decision. The difference now is we know how to do that on purpose instead of accidentally. Uh, we know what the values are beforehand, not afterwards. And so now we can flip this equation and in fact get as much as 90% of the people in the room there because we want them there because we're targeting them based on values. And the other 10%, you know, there's always some room margin for error. But uh, if you use value graphics instead of just demographics and psychographics, you're eight or nine times more effective. So there's your 90%. So the math worked out perfectly for us. And at the end, this is much, much bigger than that. We can, you know, add that 8x, 9x to the effectiveness of the dollars and hours we spend trying to get people to do things. But it's bigger. It's way bigger than that. Because whenever we start using demographics, which is at the beginning of everything. Everything we do, we begin by saying, who are we doing this for? And what do we know about them? And when we use demographics to describe them, well, that forces the initial conversation around everything to begin with us versus them, black versus white, rich versus poor, young versus old, gay versus straight. We're building the world based on a binary us versus them system. And this fuels some really harmful stereotypes about men are like this, women are like that, black people are like this, gay people are like that. We don't even necessarily believe we're doing this, but if we're looking at the world based on demographics, what's the next leap? We use stereotypes to try and make sense of those people. 
It's how we end up with millennials liking avocado toast and boomers being terrible with uh, technology and uh, all those other things that are out there in the world. And those demographic stereotypes, you know, they're fueling racism, sexism, ageism, homophobia. But it's kind of obvious that the longer we keep using demographics as a way to understand each other, the longer we're going to have demographic, cultural, social problems that are caused by demographics. So we got to stop. And the really good news is that it's going to be easy. It's not hard. We don't have to build factories. We don't have to change out the labor force. We don't have to enact new policies. We just have to change the way we look at each other. We just have to look at people with a different set of lenses on. We just have to understand what's on the inside instead of only what's on the outside, who people are instead of what people are. And if we do that, we're going to get way better results at work. We're all going to do really, really well. And at the same time, we can deal with some of these big problems that we're facing around the world right now, this divisiveness and anxiety that seems to permeate culture. So we can do well and we can do good. I think that's the big message. We need to disrupt demographics and move on and start using values as a way to look at each other. Absolutely. So let's go back and look at that chart and see if you have any super smart, intelligent, smart, awesome. smart things you want to talk about. I have a question that pertains to your, to your previous career, actually. So when people were using demographics, I mean, they, they still are, but when, they, when you were in real estate and these rooms would fill up to sell these units, and the client was like, only 10% looks like what we were supposed to be selling to. Did they ever say anything? It was just kind of like expected that we're not only going to get, you know, the, the 10% that we were looking for. Like, did they, were they were like, wow, we spent a million dollars and the room is only that 10% that you're talking no. about? No, the metric they were interested in is we spend a million dollars and all these people bought one. Okay. Uh, and <laughs> we sold out. Yay. I don't give a shit what you did. You that's managed to get all these people to buy something. That's great. Good for you. I uh, know that was just me in the corner going, Hmm, it's kind of weird. Uh, I also like how your nonchalance when you said this tool didn't exist. So we made it. That was my, <laughs> I like how easily you said that. <laughs> yeah, was made it. So, well, I mean, cool. I guess that's the <laughs> beginning of, of, a, of a lot of things, right? I, oh, of course. The, 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 the journey from start to finish wasn't quite that linear, but it's long and boring. So uh, it's not, you know, worth diving into too deeply. So the top 10 values for the reserved or reservationists versus gen pop, which I also think is a funny term. <laughs> um, I know, isn't it? Uh, it's always weird. So that. from the top, it's belonging, then personal growth, experiences, relationships, loyalty, personal responsibility, health, well-being, family, financial security, security, uh, possessions, possessions, compassion, possession, harmony. And harmony. So the weird, the weird one here is, uh, well, there's a bunch of weird ones, but family is uh, halfway down the list. Yeah. Uh, if, you, if you look at um, the top 10 for all of the United States and Canada, it's up at the top. So in the United States, it goes, number one for all of the United States is belonging and then family, which sidebar, uh, is one of the reasons it's sort of proof of what we're seeing going on in a lot of families right now. It's more important to belong to a political party than it is to be part of this family. And so that's why belonging, we see it in the data, belongingness to Americans is more important than family. Now on the other side of the border up here in Canada, by a slim margin, they're flipped. It's family first, then belonging. So we still have political fights. We just don't, you know, disown grandma as a result of her beliefs. 
So that's kind of cool and interesting. And I don't know what it means, but people who eat out in restaurants at least three times a week, families way down the list. It's number one, two, three, four, five, six. It's number eight on the list, not number two, as it would be in the United States or number one, as it would be in Canada. So that's something, something about now, again, if we subset, uh, if we did a specific profile uh, for a family restaurant, obviously the people choosing a family restaurant would have family higher up the list. But as an overall audience of people, isn't it interesting that the frequent restaurant patrons, family is less important. So I don't know what that means. And I guess the answer is it depends on who's asking. Uh, it'll mean different things to different restaurant groups and different brands and different uh, people in that ecosystem. So we interpret this as far as relationships and belonging would, is that where like friend and friend groups fall in or can we interpret family also as friends if, if that's how close you are to your friends? Well, I, you know, everybody will have a slightly different version of that. So you need to try and respond in a way that encompasses both both of those. There's five togetherness values, and we call them out and make them their own set of data points because they show up everywhere. Even in like B2B audiences for the most weird technological, like, so for example, we did a profile of, we called it the tech unicorns. This is for a, an HR group who uh, specializes in finding employees that have titles like AI cloud engineer. Uh, which I don't even know what that means, but they, they, there's this group of really hard to find tech specialists out there. So we profiled them, the tech unicorns, and we found uh, that I can't remember exactly which ones, but the togetherness values were definitely in that, in that pool. Uh, people who invest in hedge funds on Wall Street, the donors we've profiled for the United Nations folks, it's everywhere. So what we're seeing here, belonging up at the top, that's pretty normal across gen pop and, and the whole, and, and this whole audience of people who go to restaurants. Relationships is about in the same spot as it normally is, give or take. Family, way down there in number eight, that's odd. What we're not seeing at all is friendships or community. Now, again, specific restaurant categories and brands, those may show up, but the overarching audience for the entire industry here friendships and community are not showing up. Now, truth be told, uh, those are the two that always seem to rank the lowest, except in very rare circumstances. For example, one of the things we did for the United Nations Foundation was help them understand particular kind of donors uh, to one of their uh, humanitarian projects, which is called Nothing But Nets. Great organization. They raise money to send mosquito nets to countries in the world where sleeping under one of those will prevent you from being bit by a malaria-bearing uh, mosquito. Uh, so these particular donors they wanted to know more about were all medical professionals who'd had some kind of relationship with the tropics. They either were with uh, Doctors Without Borders or they were in tropical medicine or there was something about them that connected them back to tropical locations. And for them, compared to the other doctors in America and other donors to the United Nations Foundation's humanitarian efforts, community was way up at the top of the list. Huge on community. So, you know, conversations ensued about how can we make these people feel like they are a community and how can we connect them to the communities that their support is actually starting to um, impact. So it leads to very logical values thinking outcomes. So here, what we need to do is realize that friendship, 
not as big of a deal. Community, not as big of a deal. Relationships, though, that what's written all over that for me is norm at Cheers. Belonging is that as well. Uh, for any of our younger listeners who don't know who Norm at Cheers <laughs> is, um, I'm sorry for you, and you'll have to Google that. Family, yeah, family's quite low. I wouldn't be worried about that so much, um, but I'd be definitely focused on making them feel like they belong and fit in and reinforcing for them as often as you can the relationships that they're part of and that are strengthening as a result of going to a particular restaurant is a great way to strengthen relationships, build relationships, begin new relationships. Plus you have a relationship with us here uh, because we know you are all about loyalty, by the way. So uh, relationships and loyalty, I mean, great way to get that loyalty engine started is just making them feel like they belong, that they're having some cool experiences, that their relationships are becoming strong and that bonus points, if you can make it feel like they're becoming a better version of themselves and hitting on that personal growth button at the same time. So you see these, these they, they can compound as you start doing your values thinking. The problem I always have when I get to this part of the conversation is I don't know this industry. So I'm making stuff up. Uh, somebody with a deep knowledge of what it means to run or brand or uh, work in this industry will have a whole different way they react to this. And so we often say that what we're doing with this data is just, uh, we're offering the questions, not the answers. These are the questions you got to go and sort out here. Use the values thinking idea to answer questions about how do we give people more personal growth? How can, given who we are and what we're capable of doing, how can we build that loyalty engine and get that running? Uh, that's where this needs to go. And well, what I see times, basically, yeah. I see that this is what it's telling me in general is that a restaurant decision is very personal to the individual. It's if it's not so much about community, then it really is what is this restaurant going to do for me or this bar going to do for me or how does it make me feel about myself when I'm there? And then as far as, you know, the relationships, does the bartender get to know me? And when they see me through the door, are they getting my drink? Do they know what I'm getting? Does the server who tends to serve me. Are they saying hi? And they know I'm going to, what starter I'm going to want. So that's how I'm interpreting it is that this is a very personal decision. So the messaging really needs to trigger something in that individual that says, I need to go to this restaurant because hopefully also it shares my values. This brand has values that I want to support. So I think on the flip side, the restaurants need to explain what their values are, what their mission statement is, which is something that we tell clients all the time. That needs yeah. to actually be out there. Yeah, interesting. Uh, you, the, there's different kinds of values and the word gets bantered about and used in different ways. So the values that we're measuring and pushing out there are the values, the core human values that make us human. A brand can't have those because they're not human. And if someone was to ask me, what should the values of my organization be? I think the best, or my, my restaurant, my brand, I think the best answer for that is to say our values are aligned with our customers. So find out what your customers' values are and then be that. Also, if you've got a large enough workforce, find out what the values of your workforce are. And then where those values overlap with your customers' values, that's amazing. If you can be that and make both sides of this equation feel like their values are being respected and honored and seen as a result of working for devoting themselves to or being patrons of this brand, you're golden now. You're absolutely golden.
Well, when we addressed the three questions, the first thing I thought was hiring because Doug, my business partner, will tell you like he is tired of seeing we need a, a dishwasher. This is the location. If you're lucky, we'll tell you how much you're going to get paid before you get to our interview. He hates those job ads. His job ads, he's like, you need to tell people about working with you and yourself and the brand. So he, and also as far as the interviews, you can't just say, how much experience do you have? Will you take this much money? Great, let's go. They, if you want a person for longevity, you need to also, it's a, it's a relationship that you're forming. More so than those ever. questions are fantastic. And then if you ask everyone that comes to the door, you can get a, an idea of the values that those people have. And then in your hiring ads and in how you lead these people, you can actually keep them long-term if that's what you want. I know some operators who they don't want you staying past three years with them, for example, because they want you to take what you've learned. Hopefully they've helped you nurture your career and yeah. essentially become a competitor to them. Like, Hey, yeah. I've, I've taught you all this. Now, now you go and yeah. you teach someone else, but I've taught you and how you interpreted it. So I think value graphics can also be great for hiring. Oh I mean, yeah. We, we, we get asked uh, frequently to profile uh, the workforce in various industries so that an organization knows you know, not just who they have now, but who they are trying to attract next. Uh, so I guess a really great example is some work we recently did with an organization called Genesis. And Genesis is the world's uh, leader in providing, um, I'm going to try and use their terminology, customer integration experiences. I think that's it. Basically, if there's a, a contact center or the little pop-ups on your screen that go, hi, my name's Andy, how can I help you? Uh, anytime there's like customer service or tech support or sales support, those are all operating on a platform that's built by Genesis. And they do those interactions, each one of those interactions counts as one. They do 70 billion of those a year all over the world on this platform for various companies using their, their platform. So they asked us, I mean, they're very interested in helping people who run contact centers and, uh, uh, you know, customer service centers and technology support centers. They want to know how to build better cultures uh, and attract the right kinds of people and make sure they're happy and engaged and stick around. Because you know what, for the brands who are relying on that as their front line of defense, when something goes wrong or a sale could happen, you can mess up your entire brand in like, two seconds flat if the person you get on the phone is, a, is, is not in a good space. So you need to make sure those people are in a really good space so that they're not just killing all the billions you spent building your brand up over there at Nike or wherever. So, so we profiled people in that industry who work in that industry and we profiled the ones who'd been there a long time versus the ones who've been there recently, the ones who are in tech, the ones who are in sales, the ones who are in um, uh, contact center support. And we were able to identify the most important values, the most magnetic values for the ones who are the most engaged and most committed to this line of work. So now the people in those industries can go, ah, okay. So the people we really want to have in here, the most engaged, best employees, this is the stuff they really care about. Let's build that into our systems. Let's make sure our culture reflects that. Let's make sure that we're, um, pointing to that stuff when we're trying to hire so that they see that the stuff they're searching for is here for them. Uh, it's a fascinating way to think about HR, um, uh, engagement, recruitment, retention, all of those things for sure.
Well, I, it's funny that this is all valuable. So I hate when I, I'm not, I don't mean to say I find this valuable, but <laughs> as far as uh, I, I would, I see a lot of value in the recent hires and why they've stuck around, but also in people who exit right away. If they'll actually do an exit interview and see what values maybe your organization didn't hit, but also yeah. if you didn't hit those, are those, are those values that you as a brand want to hit? Do you even miss those people who didn't gel with you? Yeah. It's, um, you know, back to, to, to square one here. Uh, everything we do is driven by our personal values. If I come to a job, stay at a job, enjoy a job, work hard at a job, don't work hard at a job, leave a job in a week. It's all because of some set of values that we are finding out of alignment with our reality. So anybody who wants to understand how to engage and influence people, you need to know who they are. And to understand who someone is, you need to know what they care about, what their values are. It's that simple, really. And I see value graph is coupled with a powerful CRM system as being invaluable, really, because you are now, as you said, you're being magnetic and you're collecting their data, but you're also collecting, you're really building out the value system of your audience. Well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a dream of mine, because maybe somebody listening can help with this. Salesforce, one of the largest um, CRM systems in the world. I had some experiences with it back when in my day of working in the real estate development industry with my clients. So imagine with all the information that you're able to collect about an individual and keep on Salesforce, as you're following up with your leads, you're building your library of information about everybody that you're interacting with. And then the organization can use that information to parse and dice and slice and say, oh, wow, look, we have a whole bunch of people that have these characteristics. So a whole bunch of people have those characteristics. Imagine if they could layer on top of that, our data set. And as you're building that, refine and get even more uh, specific around the values of the people that you're trying to sell to. So as you enter more data, you end up finding out more specifically that the people you're trying to sell those condominiums to or those retail locations to or the whatever it is your Salesforce is, is focused on, you end up also knowing how to talk to them, not just when to talk to them or whether their wife has a birthday on December 15th or all that other stuff. You also get to know, oh, these folks are all about ambition. How can I convince them? How can I show them how my product is going to help satisfy their ambition? That'd be so cool. But, you know, and I've, I've, I've poked a couple of people on LinkedIn who work over at Salesforce and go, hey, let's have a chat. And everyone's like, yeah, no, busy. So <laughs> <laughs> one day, one day, maybe somebody at Salesforce will, will, uh, will give us a call. I feel like I've kept you forever and I apologize, but I do have to ask, when you first started the project, were you expecting 56 values? Was that number higher than you thought or lower? Were there any surprises like that? It's a great story, actually. Uh, the first book, the one that's out now that you can get on Amazon is about when we only had data for Canada, the United States. And we started by, you know, like everything, you kind of start with a set of values and we chose ours from the World Values Index and the Bhutan Gross Domestic Happiness Index and some other sociological tools out there. And so there was a list of 40. And we went through our process and you know, built a data set for Canada, the United States, and then wrote a book. And we've been using that to make money while we get ready and build the data for the rest of the world. So in the course of going from that initial, I think it was 75,000 surveys we did for Canada, the United States and getting to the 77,500 surveys, or no, the, the 750,000 surveys we've done to get around the world now, 
we found that there's an, an extra 16 values that weren't dominant enough in just Canada and the United States to make it onto the list. A value is only a core human value when enough people use it as a, um, as a, as a dominant decision-making tool in their lives. Uh, so a great example is environmentalism. In Canada and the United States, it was a behavior. We saw a whole lot of people behaving in ways that were about envir the environment. But it wasn't until we included the data from everywhere that that became a value, that there's enough people globally who are making every decision in their lives, consciously or subconsciously, based on how it will help the planet. It had to get graduated up to being on the values list. And that happened 16 times as we built the data set. So we got to 56. So I, I believe, I mean, we've dug around quite extensively. I believe we have the largest um, catalog of values. And I, knowing that we're statistically accurate in 180 out of 185 countries, I think it's capped. I don't think there's a 57th out there that we haven't found. <laughs> but yeah, those 16 extra values, it was like finding, you know, in sociological terms, which were a sociological data set, uh, it's like finding 16 new pyramids uh, buried in the sand in Egypt. It's like, wow, there's, there's, we thought it was 40, uh, but nope, there's, there's new ones. Um, so that alone has been quite revelatory and interesting to see what is important, where, and at what moment did it aggregate enough data around the importance of that particular value to be worthy of being a core human value. Morality is another good story. Wasn't on the list. Uh, didn't make the cut for Canada and the United States. Doesn't mean it's not important, but it just wasn't important to enough people to make the list. But as soon as we did the whole world, it, it started to show up. And interestingly, a uh, great little anecdote in, um, in uh, the Middle East, morality is the second most important value overall next to family. Not religion and spirituality. That's its own thing. And I think most of us from the West, we have this sort of cartoon idea in our head of what people in the Middle East are all about. And we think they're all hyper-religious and some of them are. Um, but I had people come up to me after I gave some speeches there a couple of years ago. There's always people come up to the stage after as you get, as you're finished and they want to talk. They're too shy to put their hands up. I had these three, three women in, in traditional dress. I could just see their eyes. Uh, they came up to me and said, yeah, we wanted you to know. Because I'd made a big deal on stage about saying, it's the only place in the world where morality is at the top. And I don't know what that means. I'm not from here. I hope it resonates with you. And they came up to tell me that it did, that it was regardless of how religious you are, that from birth that they're taught that getting to the right place in the right way is more important than anything except family. Uh, and so that was super validating. I, I was walking on a cloud having that confirmed and not just by some random stranger, by three women who I'm sure it was difficult for them to come and talk to the white guy from the West who getting down off the stage and, uh, and, and to just re reassure me that this, this was, this was, um, this was accurate. Now we see morality in China. We see morality in Africa. It's just not at the top of the list. So the story that I have to tell about it isn't as exciting as that one. Uh, that's a, that's, I really would have thought morality with, and I hate to say it this way, but the way that people are behaving in the United States right now, I would have thought that would have been because uh, they all like to hang their hat on that when they're trying to make their side win. That uh, well, we're yeah. the we're the moral side. We're we're it's we're the right ones. So I would have thought America would have been high up there. But it's an interesting thing, right? Because people will point to something, but the real reason behind that. I mean, a great example is Tesla. 
oh, I'm saving the planet. I bet if we profiled Tesla buyers, environmentalism might show up. I would pretty much bet a hundred bucks that what would show up is social standing. They're not, and probably belonging. And mm, I've, I have a few friends who have Teslas and they talk about how it's just the most amazing car ever to drive. So that might be about, maybe there's some tie there to personal growth or personal responsibility. But I would not be surprised at all if environmentalism did not show up in their top 10. Yeah, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised either. And I, I question when it comes to that technology, the, the actual impact on the environment as far, as far as they have to get the raw materials. And I think now they're saying, uh, I think it's Idaho is sitting on some crazy gold mine of cobalt, mm. which is very important, I guess, for some engineering. So now I'm like, well, once that becomes super valuable, if those mines aren't already doing any kind of damage, they're about to, yeah. most likely, unless we find a, a really environmental way of mining these things. So I just, I always wonder, like, yeah, the personal impact of driving this car and not having to fuel it is, is probably very good, but those batteries eventually are going to degrade. They have to go somewhere. And where do they it's, go? A dump? I mean, the it's, ocean? It's one of those cases of uh, what's the least worst, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it, it's, I don't know. I think Tesla's, I don't drive a car. I don't have one. Um, my life is all very much about Uber and, and uh, you know, walking and stuff, stuff like that, walking stuff, you know? <laughs> uh, but I, I, I think that, I think what's most important about Tesla and love him or hate him, uh, Mr. Musk, is uh, the way they are willing to break shit. Oh yeah, and just go. You know, we're going to take a big giant risk here and be all kooky and do something nobody's ever thought was possible. And they get laughed at for a while and loses a bunch of money, and then suddenly he doesn't. Uh, and he forces like I, I think he single handedly made. I have some background in the automotive industry, so I know what the old boys' attitudes towards electric vehicles were. Single handedly, that guy I think made Ford and Chevy and all these other companies wake up and go we got to start making some changes here. And That's a lot faster than we thought. He's not, he's not yeah. nuts if Ford is going to change the F-150. That is the one of the core, the pillars of their brand. And if they're willing to say, okay, we have to electrify the F-150, but it still has to be incredible because of the billions we make off that truck. Yeah. And I knew Musk wasn't nuts. I'm like, okay. I mean, maybe so, he so is personally, if, but... <laughs> so Yeah. So even if his cars haven't contributed all that much to environmental um to, to saving the planet and helping out the planet his impact has got that entire industry to make incremental change which in aggregate has got to be something that we celebrate uh there's an old boys club if there ever was one and they're thinking new thoughts and racing towards a better finish line and if you had asked me three years ago i'm a i'm a big car guy and if you'd asked me if i would ever own an ev i would have been like Pfft. Like you can't even hear it. Like, why would I, why would I want that? I mean, <laughs> I understand I can launch the thing faster than most cars, but I could, I mean, I can't afford it, but I could get a Porsche that could do that possibly. So why would I want that? And I sold my, my race car as I used to call it. And I got a motorcycle instead, which is a totally different world for me, but I still love cars. But now I'm like, well, you know, those lucids are really cool looking. And it's kind of a cool name. I, I don't think I want a Tesla just, because I, it's not anything against the brand. I just want what someone else maybe doesn't want. So I'm like, okay, well, people are buying Teslas. I, I would get the Lucid. Or I'd get electrified Volvo because those aren't everywhere. 
But as you said, like he caused a seismic shift in an entire industry yeah. where they moved very quickly for the automotive industry to make those changes. That's yeah. they don't move that fast in that industry. No, so no, no, no. That's no, insane. No. no. <laughs> so you just revealed a little bit about your values there. I'll just point this out because sometimes it's fun when I'm listening to people, I can pick <laughs> stuff up. So one of the 56 values is uh, self-expression and your desire to do things that other people aren't doing is your way of expressing yourself. You want to be a bit of a contrarian. You want to be the rebel who runs in the other direction. Uh, and so making decisions like that are, it's driven by your need for self-expression. I did modify the hell out of the race car. So, so <laughs> I couldn't be like everybody else's. So yeah, I, there you go. I can see that. Yeah. Although it's also part of being a community though, because I wanted to go to car shows. Yeah, so, absolutely. There's some community stuff <laughs> and some belongingness there for sure. Uh, maybe within those communities, some social standing based on what kind of um, rebellious decisions you've made it about, uh, about the product that bought your entry into that community. Uh, lots of fun stuff coming uh, out there that uh, is not here for people who eat in restaurants a lot, by the way. Yeah, I apologize for, uh, <laughs> for that, but I think people can see where these where this thought process goes and how powerful it can be. Because if you can do it, even for a single location of an independent brand, I mean, the marketing shift and the loyalty shift that they can make. I mean, that's the impact to put it in, in you know, a value that the operators would want is the they can survive long-term and more importantly, they can thrive. They can build that brand to be an empire if yeah. they do this right. So absolutely. So I'll tell you what, I will make this presentation today, these slides that we've gone through, I'll make this available. We'll send you a PDF so that anybody listening, if you share a link, um, they're, they're, they're welcome to download this. This chart is in here so they can see these values. And uh, you know, our, our mission is to get as many people as possible all around the world to stop using demographic stereotypes to think about each other. So the more we can share this stuff, if this helps somebody, I don't care if I ever hear from them, uh, if some people out there can use this chart and can uh, use it to use values as a way to think about the people in their world, I will feel like this has been a very successful uh, time spent together today. So for people who do want to reach out, how can they contact you? Oh, yeah, that's a good thing, huh? Um, they can uh, find us on, on the website at valuegraphics.com. Uh, I am active on social media platforms, but my home base is LinkedIn. Uh, so if you use David Allison there, you'll find me. Uh, I can't remember what my exact LinkedIn handle is. I think it's Value Graphics Founder or something like that. The, we also have Value Graphics uh, Project uh, corporate page on LinkedIn. Um, but yeah, any of those uh, would be a good place to go. The book again is we are all the same age now. You can get that on Amazon.com, Amazon.ca. It's on all the Amazons all over the world. And the new one's coming out in June. So uh, it's called The Death of Demographics because it's a... Nice clickbaity title, uh, and uh, we hope we can uh, at least kill off the demographic stereotypes that the world's using, if not, um, if not demographics entirely. Because I, again, I think they still have a place. They help us sort people, but uh, the stereotypes that they that they cause to uh, come forth, those things need to be killed off and fast. Fantastic! Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this today. I'm I'm very happy to have been here. Thanks for having me over.
Thank you for listening to the Bar Hacks podcast produced by KRG Hospitality and hosted by me, David Clem. If you like what you're hearing, please rate, review, subscribe, and share. Follow us on Twitter at AskBarHacks and Instagram at BarHacks. Talk to you soon.